Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. This week we're joined by Taylor Labresh of Riverhouse Games. Hey, how's it going? I'd like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? I, I have two stories for this, uh, and I kind of bounce back and forth between uh, each of them, and so I just decided to start telling both of them. I learned how to read at an incredibly early age. Um, I could speak full sentences before I learned how to walk. This is just going to go like, I was born. Um, no, uh, so I, I was reading books as early as two years old, uh, like picture books. Um, and in kindergarten, I fell into goosebumps and, uh, most importantly, choose your own adventure stories. So I would just like voraci voraciously consume, uh, choose your own adventure books. Um, then I would get so excited about them in kindergarten and like first grade that I would be like, I want to share this with my friends, but none of them were really like reading like novels or like, um, the little like novellas that I was going through. So I was like, well, it's on me to like share this joy with my friends. So I started telling my own choose your own adventure books to my friends and just basically doing like a free form, um, sort of like RP, uh, deal. And because we were like, six and seven years old it was all during recess on the playground and we would like act out um all the stories that we were telling so that's sort of like the the loosey-goosey like uh story games like indie rpg side of my background the other story is um in the summer after fourth grade i was enrolled in a summer orchestra camp through my school and i met some friends there uh and we became close, and one day I was like, hey, do you guys want to do, like, a choose-your-own-adventure story? And everyone was like, what What are you talking about, weirdo? And so, like, I started giving, like, my pitch for it to, like, tell them what it was, and one of them said, oh, you're just talking about Dungeons & Dragons, right? And I had no clue what Dungeons & Dragons was, and so he brought in these, like, these three books, which they were bright and shiny and new. This was 2001 uh, when 3.0 came out. It was, like that month and his dad was like big into AD&D &D, um and so it like picked up the new edition and taught him how to play uh and so he taught all of us how to play and we were just like really like from the it there was no hope after that where it was like this is what I want to do like forever this is what I this is what I love and so got really sucked into uh D&D &D that way and didn't actually start GMing until like a year or two later when I went, you know, all the stories that you guys are telling with these complicated rules are really kind of boring, and I'm not really having fun with them? Can I have a shot at this? And then at that point, it was like, okay, Taylor, you're the GM from now until the end of time. Do you remember your first character? I absolutely do. I don't remember his name. He was a dwarven fighter because uh, that was the easiest class to play. Um, I was handed a character sheet and basically like walked through how to make him. And I, I don't really remember anything after the first fight that I had with him, but I do remember that first fight very vividly because I said, oh, I have an axe? Fuck that. I'm going to use fire for every single thing that I do. And I uh, proceeded to have about a group of marauding orcs with, like, flaming crossbow boats, bolts, uh, a torch, and then one of them I literally just, like, shoved into a fire. Um, so it was this very, like pyromaniac dwarven fighter um who i didn't have any characterization for because i was 11 um so it was just like here's a murder machine with like a bunch of numbers attached to it yeah that was my first my first ever like written down rpg character in that first year where you were acting as a player did you enjoy it or did you always have that yearning to help guide a story more directly I think a little bit of both. Like, even now, I still am always, like, I'm always a fan of, like, being players, you know, and, like, having people GM for me. Um, I think that, like, uh, like all sorts of art, I think that, like, sharing um, stories and, like, 
experiencing the shared stories of others in equal measure is something that I that I really respect. So like I am always psyched and like down um, whenever one of my friends is like, hey, I want to like try GMing. I'm like, hell yeah, you do. Let's do it. What do you need? Let's go. But at the same time, like I am always feeling that itch of like, oh man, what would I do in this situation if I was the GM and in control of this story? So like those first years when I was just a player, I, I think at that point in time, I wasn't quite mature enough to like see that what my friends were doing and like being like yes this is something that they're sharing with me I think it was more of like mm, formians again I guess rolls eyes rolls dice so I think at that point it was very much like when can I get behind the wheel of this but I think now it's more like you know everything is awesome let's just do it if I'm GM that's great if I'm a player that's great is there anything you did as a GM in your first game either positively or negatively, that still affects how you GM today? Oh, boy. Um, I can't remember the first game that I ran, but I do remember a very terrible mistake that baby GM Taylor uh, would do constantly, um, which was that I had, like, a favorite character that I would play, and that was an elven ranger who, like, I had I had taken from, like, level 1 to, like, level 12 or something. And so... Uh, Whenever I would, like, start a game, I would always set it in the same fucking tavern, um, and I would always have the players get this snot beat out of them at the beginning by this elven ranger, who would then, like, put them in jail. And, like, that's the that's the same story that I would just, like, always run. And it probably wasn't super fun to play at, uh, looking back now, but I was an 11-year-old, you know boy living in America, uh, and I am white. So like, I was used to just having everything go my way and being like, Hey, this is the story that I'm telling and I'm going to make me feel good about it. And you're here for the ride. So, um, that's definitely something that I've like learned and can like look back on as a cringing mistake that informs how I go forward in the future. (laughs) Do you feel that railroading players is inherently negative? Oh no, absolutely not. I think that there's there's um, a good mix. So like everything in moderation um, is is the refrain. So um, there's definitely times when you want things on the rails, um, and there's definitely times when you want some freedom. But I think that what clinches it and makes it um, like moves railroading away from like the horror stories that we hear on like forums and like sitting around the table and like shooting the shit, um, I think is the buy-in from your players. So I think that having a group of players that's like responsible and like not, I I don't know, I don't want to say like literate, but like are familiar enough with what's happening that they can see like, okay, this is a plot hook that I want to follow uh, versus this is something that the GM is making me do as a power play. um, I think is, is something that um, is a valuable skill to have. On the same token, I think any GM should learn how to improvise and like go off book uh, when things do happen. One of the things that I would recommend is reading a book. Uh, it is The Art of Improvisation for GMs, and I think that there's like a fancy tagline for it. Um, I'm frantically trying to find the book by my nightstand, but I don't think it is here. Uh, it's by Engine Publishing puts it out. It's like a collection of, of short essays. But there's one essay in that book that's uh, it's about like the island theory is what it's called. And so when you're prepping a game, you don't want to have a, a game prepped out that says they're going to start here, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then they're going to end here. Rather, what you would want to do is have a start point established and then have story beats that are all sort of like defined and have notes for them and you've prepped these story moments, but not necessarily having them rely on um, specific things like uh, locations or NPCs or even things that have come before. So um, when you're looking at prepping these moments, you you can say, okay, if I want my players to find out the secret about the big bad guy, that can happen at any point in time, uh, regardless of, you know, where they are in the story. So you're, you're prepping these moments as islands rather than on a railroad track. So if your players want to get in the canoe and, and go to the first island, the closest island, that's great. If they want to get in the canoe and go to the island that's over there, that's also great because you've prepped enough that things can, um, you know, work really well in terms of improvisation, but not necessarily 
rely on being in a certain order so that when your players do go off book um and they say no no good plan survives contact with the players um when that does happen you're not kind of flailing and you're forced to railroad i think is the is the takeaway for that before you had read this book and worked on trying to have contingencies ready what was your prep between games like my prep between games was uh, filled with a lot of graph paper. I was definitely a big fan of the dungeon crawl uh, in, until this, um, until like the past maybe three or four years, I was very like traditional D&D. Like I had that sort of like weird notion that like D&D was like the acceptable role-playing game to play and like all the other games were like the, for the serious nerds. So I had played like exclusively Dungeons and Dragons and maybe a little bit of Pathfinder and like two or three games of World of Darkness until like 2013. And so my my prep experience was almost exclusively just like drawing up dungeons, populating the rooms, uh, and then saying, okay, you find yourself at the mouth of a cave. Uh, everything is dripping and damp and like blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then kind of like floundering if my players went, okay, we're going to turn around. What's in these woods? Dungeons and Dragons is the typical gateway. What did you move on to from Dungeons and Dragons for your next GMing experience? 2013 was like kind of a big shakeup year for my entire life. That's the year that um, I started coming out. uh, And it's also the year that I discovered um, podcasts, uh, which is strange. So I was working in an office, not in an office, in a a laboratory job, uh, working as a lab assistant, just basically like washing dishware for six hours a day. Um, And so I discovered podcasts and was like, okay, I can't do anything with my hands. Uh, I can't look at anything because I'm washing these dishes, but I can listen to stuff real good. And so I started listening to a bunch of podcasts on World of Warcraft because I was really into that game back then. And then kind of like moved on and said like, what else is out there? I started listening and like looking for podcasts about tabletop role-playing games or specifically Dungeons and Dragons. And I stumbled on Critical Success, which is part of the One-Shot Network. It's like a game theory podcast. And from there uh, fell into One-Shot, which is like their big like flagship podcast that they have on that network. Um, and they played a game called Lasers and Feelings, which I was like, this is, this is my everything. This is what I want out of role-playing games. And it only fits on a page? So I, like, downloaded that immediately and, like, read it. And I was, like, telling all of my friends. It was like Christ had come back and I had to spread the news to everyone. Like, this was a huge game changer. So that was the the first game after Dungeons & Dragons that I ever GM'd uh, was Lasers and Feelings. So I went from, like, this huge, crunchy, like, combat system to um, you roll one die, is it high or low? Um, and, <laughs> and just kind of, like... Uh, again, like that was just like a, a game changing moment in the history of my jamming. Like nothing would ever be the same after that game of lasers and feelings. At that point was Dungeons and Dragons more of a comfort zone for your players that you had to coax them out of, or were they looking forward to change? Oh, absolutely. Um, they, I, I think that there's still some hesitation to get, um, my, my local gaming group, um, the, the group that I've been, you know, playing with the longest. I think that there's still some hesitation to get them to move away from, like, uh, the systems with, like, a bunch of numbers. And part of that is, like, a confidence issue. So, like, I've gotten some, um, some comments or, um, some input saying, like, I like having things on the page that I know that I can look at and say, these are the skill, these are the tools that I have as a role player to do and some like trepidation towards more of the story and like rules like games because I think that I think that there's something comforting about having a page full of numbers uh, or like an overly detailed um, skill list or like feat list to, to, to choose from because that informs your RPing much more than saying I have a feelings of five and that is it for my character and like having to bring the rest of that to the table yourself but that said, I think that we've had like splendid performances from people and had really, really great um, games of Ten Candles, uh, which is um, one of my favorite games to run in GM. Dungeon World has been great for people. Lasers and Feelings, I think, is kind of hit or miss, depending on who I play it with. 
And then uh, we've also played The Quiet Year, which was uh, rough and shaky to get into because none of us are like um, visually artistically uh, gifted. But I think that kind of getting into that game and and finishing it out um, was something that kind of everyone at the end was like, wow, I had a lot more fun with this than I expected. As the GM, how do you coax new players into a system? Um, like, uh, specific systems or into, like, RPing in general? Uh, RPing in general. What do you do as the GM to help get people out of their comfort zone in a non-negative way? Yeah, exactly. Cool, because I think that that's the focus. Um, and especially for new players, you want to make sure that they are having the time of their lives at the table because um, this is their introduction. You only get one first impression on something. And definitely having seen players have bad first impressions in role-playing games and either stick with it or, you know, um, uh, decide, like, understandably saying maybe this isn't the thing for me after those poor first impressions. I think that um, making sure that your focus is on their experience, tantamount to everything else. Um, so the, the first thing that I do that's in like my, my GM toolkit for new players, um, is finding out what system is going to be the best thing to run for them. And that's something that I'm still not even a master at, but I think that it's something that I'm getting better. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, um, I was fortunate enough to go up north to a friend's lake house cabin. He had told me like, I've never played a role-playing game before, but you love them so much and talk about them all the time. Can you do something this weekend uh, for me and my three friends that have never also never played? Um, and so I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. And so I brought up a couple games and just the, the timing wasn't right. Like the ad- atmosphere, the mood wasn't like right to sit down and say like, hey, let's play Dungeons and Dragons or even like, hey, let's play Masks because I love that game too. But we were having just like a chill afternoon drinking wine on the patio. And I was like, does anyone want to play uh, a game? I brought this game called The Quiet Year. And I gave him the pitch like, hey, it's we just tell the story of a community. It's like there's questions that we just have to answer. It's kind of low input. Like it's going to be pretty chill. Um, and so like measuring the mood and like reading the room and finding out what game is going to be your intro is going to be a, a big first step. And maybe that means, like, we're not going to play my favorite game uh, in the world, even though The Quiet Year, I love it. But, like, knowing what's going to work for the situation is going to be a good thing. Um, the second thing that I do is making sure that I am always a fan of the players. Um, and that sounds like something that's really obvious, but there's a lot of work that goes into that. And I think the biggest thing that you can do is, uh, and this is advice that Darcy Ross gave me, so I, I want to make sure that I credit her, um, is making sure that anything out of the players' mouths, it's like, even if it's, if it's cliche, or even if you've heard it before, even if you may not, like, even agree that that's the right thing to do in that moment, anything that comes out of the players' mouths, you're responding with, nice, or dang, or that's so cool. And like, being sincere about it. So like, being like, really a fan of their performance, and giving them that positive, you know, re- encouragement, um, you know, like reassurance that what they're doing is right and is like something that's cool. Cause like it is, this is their first time playing. So like anything that they say is going to be cool because it's better than nothing. Um, so I think that those are kind of the two big things. So like knowing what you're playing and making sure that it's right, it's the right game for the right moment. And, and then making sure that you're as big a fan of your players as you possibly can be. When did you make the decision to go from playing The Quiet Year just as a simple thing with friends to making a podcast about it? Yeah, so I am glad that you brought that up um, because I was going to feel bad about myself if I didn't shamelessly shill my my own stuff. Uh, so I, I make a weekly podcast, a micro podcast, uh, called From the Jackals to the Shepherds. And it's just uh, five to seven minutes every week doing one card at the time to- at the at a time of the quiet year. So for those unfamiliar, the quiet year is uh, a game where you you tell the story of a community uh, as they finish up a, a devastating war with uh, a faction known as the jackals. And they have one year to sort of rebuild their community. Uh, they don't know it, but we know it as players that at the end of the year, um, the Frost Shepherds will arrive and pretty much kill everyone. So you are not sort of like building to sustain anything. You're just building to have pretty much just like this moment in play. Uh, so it's very like ephemeral, sort of like living in the moment sort of uh, 
role-playing and storytelling and it's meant to be played all at once so like you'll you'll have everyone takes a turn and they draw a card there's a question on that card that you answer and tell the story of that community but i wanted to kind of look at it and say we're telling the story of this community as it goes through an entire year but just as like this community changes and like grows or like goes through calamities or blessings um that kind of like shows us what happens in our lives and how we can change in a year so i wanted to take a look and say like how am i like personally taylor um how am i going to change in 2017 my hypothesis is that i will be able to you know look back at some of the the early cards or the early draws and say like this is what I valued or like these are the things that I thought were important in storytelling this is this is what my writing style was like these are the kind of stories that I wanted to tell uh, and then you know sort of compare and contrast that to at the end of 2017 um, when the frost shepherds do arrive you know how has my life changed in you know however many weeks you know what changes have I undergone as a person where am I at in my life that's you know different from where I was when I started um, what in the same way that the community has has gone through them, what calamities uh, have I survived in 2017? What blessings were in my life in 2017? Who did I meet? What discussions did I have? What projects did I start? What did I? What new did I discover about myself and my life? And you know, on top of all of that big sort of like huge high concept stuff, I just thought it was cute to like do a five minute podcast every week and be like here I am, I'm gone. Like, and just having the quiet year in that format where it's like, you get these cards, you're going to have a couple minutes for each of them. And then they're done. You go on to the next thing. Um, I think that that was a really good model for like doing a, a micro podcast. Since it is a recorded podcast and you have the luxury of not doing it live. Do you do any sort of directing for the guests on the podcast? Not really. I, I have had people, um, come on, like you, like you've mentioned, I feature voices. So, um, I think the, the, the one that I am the most a fan of was, uh, someone who I understand you've already had on the show, Aaron Catano from, uh, All My Fantasy Children. I, I had Aaron voice a mechanic in the community. Um, and, uh, ideally, hopefully, um, we'll have that mechanic return. But I, I sent over just this huge list of copy. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully he was willing to record it. Um, and I did float him some money, uh, some last minute, oh my God, this is a page long. Can you do this for me? Please, please, please. Sort of payment uh, in that. But other than that, I think that for the most part, it's been me going, who's who's up for a voice uh, in, you know, the various Discord channels that I'm in or on Twitter or like texting a friend like, hey, can you do this? Here's the line. And then like five minutes later, getting the line back and editing it. So I think other than just Aaron's lines, and I didn't even give him all that much direction. I just said, hey, can you do this? I, I think it's been pretty left up to the players. And I think that that's kind of by by intent or by design. So like when you're playing the quiet year and you're having a discussion, you're you're embodying members of the community and um, giving them voices. And so uh, for me to editorialize would kind of, I think, make it a little bit monotonous. And I can already sort of like fall into that trap by putting the words in their mouths by like writing them ahead of time and saying this is these are the words that are going to leave your lips um but like leaving it up to people to give their different interpretations of how to deliver those lines i think has been surprising um so aaron definitely threw me some curveballs in the way that he delivered the mechanics voice um i thought it was going to be um a much more like dour or like stern mechanic so it's it's a character who has just come off of the war probably a frontline soldier but Aaron, I think, turned it around and said, you know, here's someone who has found peace in this moment and like in their new life. And yes, they still have that dark side that they are aware of and acknowledge. But like, I think for the moment, they found peace in their work. Um, and having that come through in the delivery of the lines um, is something that I would not give up for like anything. So I think in the future, I'm just going to say, here are the words. Give me your performance on that. And speaking of podcasts you do, there's also The Leviathan Files, which is over two years old now. 
Yeah, and I think a large part of that age is just the um, the lack of momentum that we have in these later episodes. But yes, this is something that we started in 2015 in February, and we we started as a weekly podcast, and then moved to biweekly, um, and then moved to whenever we can, and now I think we release once every ice age. But that is because um, when we when we started the podcast, everyone lived within walking distance of each other. And as we um, as we've grown up uh, in just the span of two years, um, so many things have changed. I I got a new job and then have since been promoted twice in that position. People have uh, moved across the city from um, from me, so now it's you know it's a, a drive to get to people, whereas it was a walk or a bike before. There are also just changing relationships, um, so we're all still on like really great terms with each other, but like everyone's kind of becoming their own adult um, as we are all moving from young 20-somethings to mid to old 20-somethings. Um, so I, I think that there's sort of like an evolution that is kind of um, slowing down the Leviathan Files. And not that that's a bad thing. It, I mean, it is for production, but I think that it's something that I can celebrate because I'm really proud of who we are as people. Um, and I don't think that I would want to sacrifice that for a weekly schedule. Has the difficulty in scheduling things made you want to move towards more isolated games one shots that type of thing versus an extended play um i think sort of um so the leviathan files was always going to be like a limited run of things but i said okay let's do uh four seasons of 10 episodes each and i think that that was generous <laughs> Uh, so I think moving forward, I already have an idea in mind of what I want to do after this current story is done. And that's a, that's a, like a supernatural Western, but I, I kind of want that to stay in the 10 to 15 episode range. I think that that is where, um, sort of the magic like storyline happens in terms, not only of like planning and narrative, but also just like logistically. So if you have people who are together for 10 episodes and then saying, that's your, um, that's your obligation. That's your responsibility to this production that we are making. Uh, after that, if we want to readdress and say, Hey, this is great. Let's keep doing this. Then that's fantastic. But if life happens and uh, circumstances change, that's okay too. And I think that that's something that we run into a lot as tabletop role players is that like all of our groups are changing and everyone has different lives. And so like planning your story and planning your narrative and planning like the arcs that you want to happen, but keeping in mind that people in 10 episodes, in 10 sessions might be in a different life position that they are. Um, and just like being aware of that, I think is going to be the best way to fight that. Like, Oh, my campaign just kind of fell apart. Uh, syndrome. If you were getting towards the end of the limit that you had given yourself for a story to continue, would you feel the need to conclude the story, or would you prefer to leave it open and not rush it to an end? I think definitely leaving it open. And I think an example that we've we've seen of this is a game that I do want to pick up again. But right now it's just kind of like a one episode thing, which is the um the crossover episode I think between seasons 2 and 3 where Megan Dornbrock from Modifier came on and ran an amazing game of the Dragon Age role-playing uh game for me and SJ and Chris. Um, and we didn't quite finish that adventure, but, um, at the same time, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to rush anything. Um, I knew that we all had a hard time limit. Um, so I just said, Hey, uh, if we pick this up later, that's going to be perfect. But right now I think that it's time to sort of like end. I, I much prefer stories that end without closure than stories that speed to a finish. Another example of this that I think is something that was sort of like hampered by this mistake and something that taught me very well this lesson is one of my favorite television shows of all time uh, is Battlestar Galactica. And they, uh, I, th I think, I don't have any sources that back this up, um, like, concretely, but I've, I seem to remember reading places that they were intending to have um, five or six seasons to it. But in their, their third or fourth season uh, is when the big writer's strike happened, and rather than sort of, like, acquiescing to the um, sort of the... the you know, needs of the writers, um, the, the, you know, very, I, I want to 
come down on this without being like, this was the writer's fault for striking. Because I think that, like, they definitely had a lot of, like, legitimate concerns about how their industry was being handled. But rather than sort of, like, giving in to the writer's demands, um, the the studios just said, okay, we'll do it in four. And having that fourth season just kind of, like, rush through um, all of the content and, like, ideas that would have been so much better served with additional exploration... I would have much rather had that show end with a lot more, um, a lot more threads left untied. Now, the Leviathan Files is set in the Mass Effect universe. Do you have any difficulties as the GM when the players know the universe that you're in and the secrets of the universe that you're in? Not really. Um, and I think that I get, I kind of cheated on this where I had sort of, like, picked the game up five years after the events of canon. Uh, so I could say anything that I am keeping secret is something that I have added, rather than anything that's supposed to be secret within the universe. So we we do touch on things like CSEC or sort of the uh, genetic modification of the, the Tholian. Um, now, I mess this up every single time. The Thorian. Um, Tholians are from Star Trek. I should know this. So there's there's a couple secrets there, but I think that we've hand-waved them as be, as saying... It's five years after the fact. Like, this may have been declassified anyway. So, not really expecting them to um, remain untested in that world. When did you first get the idea to run this game? Oh, that was a while ago. That was um, back in, like, late 2014 when I... um, Back in my baby days when I was caught up on podcasts, and now I have a nine-month backlog. I had finished listening to, uh, I was caught up on One Shot, and I was like, damn, this actual play thing sounds pretty neat. Let's give it a shot. And so I grabbed a very, very bad uh, telecom mic from a friend, uh, and I said, let's do this. Let's uh, let's make this a Drunks and Dragons podcast, but in space. It's going to be great. Nothing can go wrong. And we all got way too drunk for our own good uh, and made unlistenable radio. Um, so there is a reason why the first nine episodes of The Leviathan Files are all compressed into one 20-minute intro ep- episode. <laughs> Um, and that's because we were dumb and we didn't know what we were doing or getting into. So I think that uh, starting the Leviathan Files is something that I would have done. I would do much different uh, today than I did back then. But I'm very glad that I did it the way that I did um, because I am happy with the lessons that I have learned now. What's the biggest surprise the players have thrown at you in that game? Ah, boy, I... This is going to sound really conceited, but I don't think that they've surprised me all that much. Um, I think if I had to pick a surprise, um, I would think that it would be, um, and this is very, very early in the, in the, the series, so it will be virtually a spoiler to no one. But, uh, there's a scene where, uh, Alana Bell is sort of like starting to get, weird or like taken over, um, by this strange plant, like spore creature. Um, and she is advancing, uh, not Alana Bell, uh, Jax is doing this and she is advancing on Alana Bell, um, who is another character in the show. Uh, and Alana Bell kind of like picks her up and throws her bodily into this like, um, abandoned spaceship. And I think that that, uh, was a very fortunate accident that I was surprised about because it let me, uh, it let me allow her to disappear into the darkness and sort of just like GM wave my hand and make all the sinister things that I had been planning, um, like very intricately, like, okay, so this needs to happen and then this needs to happen. I was planning on railroading when I should have been islanding and Alana Bell tossing, uh, Alana Bell tossing jacks into this uh, abandoned ship was the the flood that separated the, the two events and made them into islands. So I think that was the biggest surprise. And what would you say was the biggest surprise you've thrown at the players? Oh, um, anytime that I bring Jax back is like a great, like, I can, I can see the looks on their face as they go, I thought I killed you already. <laughs> But that is the the sinister thing about um, this plant spore creature is that it can it will bring you back if uh, if it needs to um, needs to have its purposes filled. So I think that that's always great is seeing uh, seeing her return. 
There's also, I think, some surprises in terms of what NPCs know and what they don't know. So being able to play off of people thinking that they have secrets uh, until after those secrets are revealed to everyone else has been pretty spectacularly fun. If you could present the Leviathan files in front of a live audience, for example, at an event like PAX Unplugged, how would you present that game in a live setting versus a recorded setting? Yeah, um, that is a really good question, and I'm going to dodge it completely by saying that I just wouldn't. Um, so I have uh, a couple players on the Leviathan Files who have some anxiety issues. Uh, I do as well. And so sort of making live episodes I don't think is going to be a mix. Um, so the players that I have in, in TLF uh, are some of them. There's some overlap with the players who have expressed uh, sort of trepidations with being put on the spot in terms of, um, you know, feeling unprepared for role play uh, without sort of like the, the scaffolding of, uh, of a system. Um, and I wouldn't want to um, sort of exacerbate that with a live audience. So we did try to do a live episode once. Thankfully, we were like small enough that nobody showed up to it. Uh, we went to my local comic book store, The Source Comics and Games in Rollsville, Minnesota. Got a table near um, near the vending machines uh, and just played a game with nobody watching. Uh, and even then, it was kind of uncomfortable. And I could tell that like live gaming might not be the best thing. Is there any RPG system that you would feel comfortable GMing in front of an audience? Yes, many. And um, I think if there was an audience that wasn't sort of... I think I get to to use the, the cop-out example with TLF um, because of the players not maybe feeling uncomfortable. But I have run live games in the past. Uh, I at, at GeeklyCon 2016, uh, I ran The Warren. Uh, for a group of like 12 people. And uh, I I think um, there I cheated as well because I said, you're not an audience member. Uh, write up a character. When one of these people in front of you dies, uh, they're going to sit in the audience. You're going to come up and play. Um, so we had 12 people kind of like swapping in and out because the Warren is about a group of rabbits uh, and life for rabbits can be nasty, brutal, and short. So I think there I got to cheat as well. I would love to run uh, a live game of, oh boy, pretty much anything. Um... So I, I've been involved with a podcast called the MFG cast, uh, and they do, um, they call them fantasy improvs, um, where we all jump on a Google Hangouts chat. Uh, they throw the Hangouts on air on, um, and we just do an improv based on like fantasy or tabletop, uh, like genre tropes. And those have been spectacularly fun. I have also, uh, just recently, actually in April, I was, uh, I was lucky enough to cooperate with a, a group called Lawful Good Gaming, which, um, teams up with tabletop RPG people and charities to run events, uh, or streams or what have you. And the tickets for all of these events are just donations to set charities. So I ran a game of masks where people, um, to get a ticket at that table, uh, you would have to donate to the National Immigration Law Center. And that was broadcast live. I don't think that I've done anything in person, but I would love to. I think my personality is very outgoing. Um, and I think that that's been served because uh, of my 16 years of gaming. So Tabletop has taught me how to be loud and fight, fight for my spot in the limelight. And especially GMing because you are the center of the attention uh, for the majority of the game. I don't think that I would have a lot of difficulty running a live game. Uh, with any system, I think. The one that I probably would most like to do um, would be anything powered by the apocalypse, but that's just because it's my jam right now, and I love it. If you were given a blank check, Disney style, how would you increase the immersion for the audience? Oh, boy. Um, so if I was given unlimited resources to make this production, I would turn that money into time. Um, and I, I would quit my day job and just throw myself into the production. I am incredibly jealous of the skills, um, and the production quality of, uh, of God's Fall, which is a, a podcast run by, by Aram Varshan, uh, who lives in Chicago. And he sinks so much time into every episode of God's Fall. And it's just 
Oh my God. It's like chef's kiss. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Everything is lovingly handcrafted. Um, it's like the artisanal, like this took 30 hours to make and it's an hour long podcast. Uh, and you can tell that it's like a work of love and like he's a, a video, uh, audio, like editor, graphic designer, like as his day job. So he has all these skills and he, he has the dedication and like drive to like sink that hours in. And I think that he can because, um, the, the audience reaction to that has been overwhelmingly positive. And so, um, the support that he's gotten from things like Kickstarter for the world book or Patreon for the show, um, I think has been something that is really supportive. Um, so if I were given the unlimited resources of as many dollars as I needed, I would, I, I think that I would be able to put that money into, into making something. If you could be a player at anyone's table, who would it be? Oh my God. Um, oh boy. Thankfully I have been like really blessed with the people who I've been able to game with. And so there's, there's kind of two ways to answer this. And the first is like star factor, like who would I want to GM me? And that is unequivocally, no questions asked, like hands down Vin Diesel. Like I want Vin Diesel to GM a game for me and like really go all out. And that, that may be because I have a huge crush on him, which is understandable and, um, and totally fair. And I should not be judged for that. I really do. I'm in love with Vin Diesel. Um, but also just because like, I think that he is the kind of person that would be like, here's the action. Here's like the, the really like hard hitting combat, like all the cool, like crunchy bits, but then like also really like a caring GM and being like, Hey, hell yeah, we're going to do this. Like, what are you into? Like, let's go, let's do this. Let's have this game for everybody. Cause I think that that's the, the sort of persona persona that he puts forth, um, in his celebrity. Um, but if we're talking about like, whose table do I really like, really want to be at probably like a really close friend. And there's 400 million answers to this. One of my friends, um, is writing her own game and doing a podcast on it. Uh, the podcast is called Infinite Development. The game is called Waypoint. Um, and her name is Amy Weston. Uh, and I was lucky enough last weekend to sit in on a play test of that game and it was phenomenal. There's also a friend of mine, uh, Brandon Langabetta, who's working on a game called Pasión de las Pasiones. Uh, it's a telenovela powered by the apocalypse hack. Uh, and I was l- blessed enough to get into a play test on that. And it was fantastic. And he's a great GM and a great friend. Um, so I think the cop-out, an- like, I keep saying this is a cop-out answer, but like, this is genuine. Like anything that a friend of mine who is like making a thing, I want to be at the table where they play test it. Like this is something that you've sunk your time, energy, your like, there's so much emotional investment in this for you. And I think that that's something that's really obvious when you are friends with someone and they're sharing something that they made with you. Like that's one of the best experiences that I've ever had in my tabletop RPG, like entire history. Um, like the 16 years that I've, I've spent doing this. Um, the best tables that I've been at are like, Hey, I made this thing. Can you, can you help me share in the joy of it? Have you been similarly inspired to create a game of your own? Uh, in 2016, my New Year's resolution was to write a game a month, uh, and I did that. And um, some months were very difficult. Some months were very easy. But I, I think that game design is something that I love doing, um, is the lesson that I learned in 2016. And sort of like moving that forward into 2017 um, is something that I want to do less sort of like shotgun um, and more of like a precise, these are the projects that I want to make. These are the games that I want to do. Um, these are the sort of like personal therapies that I need to give myself because I think that, um, that for me, game design is a way of putting into words something that I can't really define. So, uh, not to get political, but, um, after the election, I think that I felt uh, a very large deal of frustration in, in terms of what had happened, um, and feeling sort of like there's a lot of evil, um, and sort of like, uh, real, real life toxicity and, um, and sort of, uh, like devils and demons living with every day. And I didn't really see that. So I would have neighbors who, who voted for Trump, uh, and, um, 
you know, sort of like after the election spewing all of this homophobic uh, speech or like this sexism, racism, all this sort of things that sort of like have become synonymous with uh, with this re- regime that we are seeing and sort of like feeling like, how did I not see this before? Um, something that is so clearly meant to poison me and like sort of reconciling um, my sexuality with my relationship to these people was something that I didn't really know how to put down. So there was a call for game designers to, uh, to write games in response to, or, um, in reaction for, or like to heal about, like just to, to get something done, to put something on paper about like how you're feeling or what you think we need right now. Uh, and that was the two weeks anthology that was, uh, curated by Dan Enders and I wrote a game for that called And I Saw Him on the Train, which is about running into these sort of like toxic people. And it's about, uh, it's about your encounter with the literal devil, um, who is sort of in disguise as a mundane person, but you run into, you run into him on the train and he tries to drag you to hell. And that's the the story of the game. And I think writing that was very cathartic for me. It let me sort of like put into words how I was feeling, like the betrayal that I had felt, as well as being able to share that with other people and say like, if you're feeling this, here is this game. It might not be healing for you, but it can at least help you define the way that you're feeling. Do you think your experience as a GM helps you write games or is there no correlation I think it absolutely does, um, because um, when I when I am writing games, and to use Powered by the Apocalypse, I think as a, a big example, because that that's kind of my flavor of the month right now. I, I think for many good reasons. But um, when I'm writing a a game, and I'm working on two PBTA games right now, I am looking at the way that mechanics are sort of like written and presented in terms of how the players are going to react to them and what the players can use. So when you have a playbook that has a list of certain moves, those are roadmaps for the GM to say, here are things that your players have chosen that they think is important about their character. Let those shine through and play. Structure your planning and your and your gameplay to highlight those moves and give them as many chances to use them as you possibly can. But on the other side of that saying, okay, I am a GM. I know kind of like what is going to happen at the table. I'm, I'm aware of interpersonal dynamics. Um, I, I know what situations work and what don't at my table, being able to take that knowledge and put that into the moves to avoid situations, which are going to be like accidental PVP at the table, um, or are going to be things that just, you know, might sound cool on paper, but like when you come into play, it's not really compelling. Um, I think that there is a, uh, a trend and I, I mean, no disrespect by, by saying this, but I think that there's a trend in PBTA where you choose a move and it just gives you a plus. So it's like you get a plus one to act under fire or like you can use this other stat in replacement of this stat when you do X move. Um, and I think that those are useful, you know, in terms of like customizing your gameplay or customizing your role play. But I think much more compelling than that is um, things that trigger other events or things that trigger a role that uh, add, you know, narrative complications to things. So moving kind of beyond just the the mechanical numbers game, um, I think has been something that my GM experience has informed me because, yeah, it's cool to be like, hey, you get an extra plus one on this role, but it's also really cool to say like, here's this thing that only you can do that changes the story in a way that's completely unique to your playstyle. What is it about the Powered by the Apocalypse system that you prefer over other systems? There's a lot there. I think that um, it's sort of that thing where it's like easy to learn, difficult to master. And not that you're really, there's a, there's not a lot system mastery wise um, in terms of like the way that the Apocalypse World engine works. But I think that it's something that's incredibly accessible for people who are getting into game design, but it has enough, like it has so much nuance and you can play with it so well um, that you can really do um, so much with it to create the, um, the experience and like evoke the right emotions uh, and story beats that you want to. So, uh, you know, everything just revolves around this 2d6 plus stat uh, for your moves. 
But even then, you can sort of like duck down further than that. So uh, Rob Donahue has this really good article um, that I always forget the name of, um, but I will hopefully find a link for after this interview um, and send it over to you. But um, it's about sort of like diving deep into the way that you can structure that 2D6 role. So if you have, um, uh, you know, on a six minus, uh, seven to nine, and ten plus. Those are the three sort of like tiers that you can set when designing a move, and those can range from anything from you you're in it this time to like you've succeeded beyond your wildest comp- like dreams, and sort of like moving the slider on that move between all of those things is a, a really good way to not only incentivize the player for certain actions but also drive the story in different ways. So um, Rob sets it out that there's there's five options for that. There's, um, there's haha, good luck. There is, this is bad. There is, this is okay. There is, this is good. And this is wa- better than your wildest dreams. And so if you have three results, kind of positioning them at different stages in those five different outcomes can help you sort of like craft the move that you are making in a way that sort of dictates how you want the game to play forward. So depending on how you feel about violence, if your um, if your uh, hack and slash move, um, the three options are, haha, you're fucked, this is bad, and this is okay, that says something so much different about the world than if your hack and slash move is, this is okay, this is good, this is better than your wildest dreams. And just using that as an example of like how you can really play with the simplicity of Apocalypse World but still have it in a way that is like really upfront and forward about being about the the things that you are doing rather than like the numbers or the outcomes if that makes sense i also really love um the trend f- uh in apocalypse world games to be focused on interactions with players so um masks has teammate moves so like when you share a celebration with your teammate uh, such and such happens, or when you expose a vulnerability to your teammate about yourself, um, X, Y, Z, different thing happens. And s- so players seeing that on their, their, um, on their page and saying, these are things that I want to have happen, but I need to, you know, I need to tell this other person at my table what I'm afraid of. Um, and just like saying like that, is something that I'm going to work for and like come out and play is something that's like really um, a lot better than, uh, you know, like pretty much anything that I'd seen before discovering powered by the apocalypse games. So it was like such a refreshing, like here's the story, but like, we're going to put it in a way that makes it mechanically fun. I think has been something that is, you know, something that I love about powered by the apocalypse games. It's also just a lot more easy to, like, get into. Like, um, I don't have to spend three hours making a character. It's, like, five minutes character creation. I circle my my three looks. I circle my two moves. I, uh, I distribute four to six stats. Boom, we're done. Maybe come up with a couple backstory points, and then we're ready to roll. What has been the single most gratifying moment for you as a GM? So... One of the games that I'm working on currently is called This is a Game About Fishing, uh, and it's a Powered by the Apocalypse game where the the high concept is gangs of gregarious youths uh, in the near future engage in the most dangerous crime of all, high-tech fish heists, uh, which is like... Uh, I know that that's a little bit to get into, but I have been like tossing this idea around for like a year and a half, um, trying to find stuff that works, stuff that doesn't, and in... Like November, December uh, time frame, um, I happened into a, a gaming group of some pretty rad people, and I love all of them. But we we started doing a playtest of the newest build for this is a game about fishing, which um, transitioned from like a dice pool, like scaling success mechanic to powered by the apocalypse, and running those playtests and seeing their reactions to this thing that I have put like a not insignificant part of myself into and reacting in the way that they did. Uh, so they all have Pinterest boards for their characters. They like have like started talking about like shipping their characters with one another. Um, uh, like all of these amazing interactions, like a couple of them have drawn their characters and like seeing this reaction to a game that I wrote has been just like mind boggling and overwhelming. And like, it doesn't feel real to me. So I think that seeing that reaction of like 
wow, you like this is something that is, and I'm just like babbling at this point. Like, <laughs> it's something that has been rewarding in a way that I had n- like no clue that it could be. Was a fishing game with scaling success an intentional pun? It was not, but I'm going to act like it was in all future questions. <laughs> We're going to start wrapping up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernal Pivo. What is your favorite word? Oh, good question. My favorite word. Um, in terms of sound, effervescent. Uh, in terms of saying it, crust in terms of like actually just using it um in in my everyday life i think fantastic or fabulous or amazing overwhelming um exuberant uh joyful a lot of these like really positive words uh i like to use uh supportive uh encouraging yeah what is your least favorite word i think like maybe no um, <laughs> I don't like hearing no a lot. I also don't like saying no. Yeah, that's going to be a really simple answer. No. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Oh, this is a very easy one to answer. Spite. I think that I can get more, uh, more motivation out of like feeling salty or like spiteful about something or just like annoyed like this, mm, this rubbed me the wrong way. I better write a game about it. Uh, I think that that is uh, a very motivating factor for me because I can use that negative emotion in a way that, uh, at the end of the process, I have something that I'm proud of. Have you ever written a spiteful game about somebody with too many items in the express lane? Oh, I have not, but I will add it to my list. (laughs) What turns you off? I've been very good at talking about this recently, but I suffer from, uh, not suffer from, um, I experience uh, bipolar depression. And so when I am going through my, my, um, my high tide to use uh, AMFC parlance uh, or like a a high period, um, I, I feel like I'm, unstoppable or invincible and I can do anything and I have so much energy to do things. But when I'm in my low tide, it's, um, it's kind of a struggle to just wake up and get out of the bed. And it's not something that I have any control over. Um, it's not something that I can like turn on or off, but just when that depression hits, it feels so hard to just like care about normal things. And so everything kind of falls by to the wayside, uh, other than just like getting up, get out of bed, eat food, put clothes on, go to work, come home, go to sleep. And like, not to get like really real about that, but like that sucks so much, especially when I am like, know that I have things that I want to make. I have games that I want to run. I have people that I want to engage in. And I think that it like creates a vicious cycle where that makes like me not fulfilling my desire, my creative desires um, feeds into me feeling bad about myself in a way that's very difficult to break out of. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Definitely fuck. (laughs) Followed secondly by shit in different contexts. So uh, I really like the, the low under the breath, like surprised fuck of like people as they realize like what's going on or um, uh, I, I like to joke that my two GM styles are like shiny glitter overdose or like bone crunching horror. Um, and hearing fuck in both of those contexts, like fuck, that is really cute or fuck, that is terrifying is, is a good feeling. What sound or noise do you love? I really love the sound of, of meat grilling. I learned how to cook uh, from my dad, who taught me how to make two things to the best of my abilities. The first is bacon and eggs, and the second is hamburgers. And so in both of those situations, when you have uh, bacon sizzling on a on a pan uh, or um, a freshly like hand-molded uh, hamburger patty going on a grill, um, I think that that contact of, of meat on heat um, is something that has a lot of sentimental connections to me.
What sound or noise do you hate? Would it be cheating to say no again? No. <laughs> um, uh, no, I think the sound that I, I really hate... Um, Oh boy, uh, the squeak of like utensils on plates. What game system would you like to attempt? I have never ever tried the Cortex system, and I was just talking to Jeff Stormer of Party of One Podcast. This is going to be just like the name drop episode of In the Master Studio. Um, I was talking to Jeff about how I had never played Cortex before, um, and how it, it might be a good system to run like a fighting tournament game. Um, so I, I'd like to give that a shot. What game system would you not like to attempt? Uh, probably any of, like, the really terrible ones from, like, the 80s or 90s that were, like, super sexist or whatever, but, like, that's a cop-out answer. So, like, I wouldn't want to play Cult. Um, I don't know. What's the the Fatal. one that's just, like, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> I would never want to play that. Um, but those are just, like, moral reasons. Like, I don't know, like, mechanics are mechanics. Crunch is good. Fluff is good. I don't know. When your games conclude, what would you like to hear from your players? So I think when I'm done with Leviathan Files, I want, I would love for people to say, this was something that I had fun playing, um, or this was something that I'm glad that I was a part of. And I think the same for Jackals. So like, it sounds like a really low bar, but like having people not hate something, (laughs) um, so like, yeah, just like enjoyment. Like every game is super fun to run and hopefully it's super fun to play in. If you go back in time to watch one person sneeze, who would it be? Probably myself when I'm like five, just so I could like point at me and be like, ha, um, that's an easy answer. That's a bad answer. I'm going to change that one. Uh, let's see. Finn Diesel. <laughs> I know he's alive now, and I can just, like, if I wanted to, I'm sure that there's a video of him sneezing somewhere, but, yeah. Go back and watch five-year-old Vin Diesel sneeze? That's it. Yep, that's my answer. <laughs> now, having introduced you as Taylor Labresh of Riverhouse Games, can you tell the insiders more about Riverhouse Games? Yeah, so Riverhouse Games kind of is the umbrella... Um, sort of like organization. Um, I say organization, it's me. Um, (laughs) It's the the branding that I have chosen for uh, the things that I make. So those are the three podcasts. Uh, Those are The Leviathan Files, which is a um, by Ice Age uh, actual play of the Mass Effect D20 system. Uh, There's From the Jackals to the Shepherds, which is a weekly micro-podcast of The Quiet Year. Uh, There's also Game Closet, which I do... um, that's a sort of an interview show where I talk to queer and LGBT tabletop gamers about um, projects that they're doing, uh, games that they love. Um, Riverhouse Games is also uh, sort of like the branding for the games that I write. So I do have a couple micro games up on Drive-Thru RPG right now under that title. So if you just type in Riverhouse Games into the search bar, uh, they're all one or two dollars. Most of them are are between one to 10 pages, uh, there will be some larger offerings. So currently we do have, uh, in editing a science fantasy game called creatures of blood and flesh, uh, which is going to be pretty fun. There's also the two games that I'm working on. This is a game about fishing, uh, which I've given the pitch for. I'm also working on a game, uh, right now under direction of rich Howard, and we don't have an official title for it, but I have been lovingly calling it Aquacalypse World. Uh, so that is a uh, PBTA game about, um, it's like a psychic, uh, underwater, uh, aqua- aquatic game where you play uh, psychic defenders of a reef um, trying to fend off uh, corruption and like pollution. So those will be hopefully up under the Riverhouse Games uh, banner sometime uh, this year. Um, I'm bringing, this is a game about fishing and Aquacalypse World to Metatopia uh, for playtesting. So those are kind of the two big, uh, big pillars of Riverhouse Games. The name comes from right now uh, where my local gaming group lives is a, uh, a house that they rent, which is literally on the banks of the Mississippi River. So they are moving out of that house in like a couple months, uh, which is kind of a, an emotional thing to have happen, knowing that the river house is going to go away. But I think that the, the brand is still going to stay the same. And finally, if you could choose one of your games that you've written to be your legacy, which would it be? Uh, it would definitely be, this is a game about fishing. I think that it's, it's kind of got the right mix for me of 
like silly, lighthearted, um, sort of like rollicking high adventure stuff, but with the potential to be sort of like a little bit scary at times, some actiony sequences, and having like emotional content to it. So we started our very first playtest for that game uh, with two characters who had um, coincidentally like um, found themselves in the right situation that they had hooked up the night previous to the game starting. So it started with them sort of like examining their feelings, but then also like going outside and like playing with their uh, monitor lizard pet um, and like going on this high rolling, rollicking adventure to steal an experimental fish. <laughs> so it's, it's got like all the, the nice genre notes that I love. And it's, it's been something that, um, I've grown a lot as a person making. Where can the insiders find out more about you? There's a lot of opportunities for this to happen. So um, my website is riverhousegames.com. I am on Twitter quite frequently, at Leviathan Files. Um, those are the two big ones. Um, Riverhouse Games is on Facebook. Um, I wish I was better at using Facebook so that I could use it more often. We also, uh, I am technically on Google+, but like uh, like the Facebook situation, I'm still not... Uh, got the hang of Google Plus territory. And then uh, you can always email uh, email me at riverhousegamesmn at gmail.com. Uh, that's MN as in Minnesota. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here. Make sure to follow Taylor on social media and keep up to date with his podcasts on riverhousegames.com. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. This podcast is an Audio Entropy original. If you enjoyed it, head on over to AudioEntropy.com for more podcasts like the newest addition to Audio Entropy, BakaCast, a weekly anime podcast that reviews and riffs on the current season shows. While it is new to Audio Entropy, it is currently on episode 323. You can also check out All Along the Watchtower, a Dr. Fate-guided tour through the DC Animated Universe. In Akatacon 2017 5th edition news, there's still 9 days left, and they're only $875 away from their goal. Akatacon is a 3-day gaming convention at the Dayton Convention Center in Dayton, Ohio. It's held on Veterans Day weekend, November 10th through the 12th, It's a gaming convention designed to be smaller and non-traditional that will give you more access to games and creators while you're there. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, the Shepherds will arrive for everyone at some point, so take the time you have now to spend it with friends, creating and sharing stories you can keep close, however long your quiet year lasts. party people, Jeff Stormer here to talk to you about my podcast, Party of One. Every week on Party of One, I sit down with a guest one-on-one to play through a short, intense role-playing game to explore what happens when we play some of our favorite games like Dungeons & Dragons with only one other person, as well as to explore the world of fascinating role-playing games designed explicitly for two people. Episodes range from funny to scary to sad to occasionally sexy, so you'll probably find something you love. Check us out at soundcloud.com slash partyofonepodcast and party on.